0: Welcome to this broadcast of worship emanating from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I am Dr. Charles McGathy, and I am coming to you in a pre-recorded version today. And uh, for those who are listening via podcast, that is typical. But for those who are joining us through the miracle of radio, and I say miracle, it's been quite a miracle for us, we welcome you uh, on a day that many churches in our area will be closed because of an immense snowstorm that, uh, as I record this on Thursday, is expected for Sunday. So welcome. Welcome. To this form of worship. If you're used to worshiping in person, uh, we will meet again next week at 110 South Franklin Street in Madison, North Carolina. And we welcome all to join with us as we wear our mask and we're socially distanced and we take every precaution that is prudent so that we might meet in person. And there, of course, will be others who will want to join us through the internet, or perhaps even through Facebook. Facebook is not possible on a day when we don't meet in person, but we will resume as soon as we do. So with that, I'd like to share with you a message that I believe is evergreen. In other words, it's timeless. Ever since I've been involved in Christian ministry, one of the most Difficult and frequent questions I hear is, would a loving God send people to hell? Well, there's a passage of scripture I'd like to share with you from the Psalms, in fact, Psalm 27, which addresses that issue. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a conversation with someone in which you discussed the merits of your faith? You might have encouraged the other person to believe in God, to trust in Jesus with their life and come to church. Then the non-believing nuclear bomb question is dropped. This question is so difficult to answer that it effectively stops all evangelism in its tracks. So few Christians can respond effectively when asked this question That the person being witnessed to is virtually assured that the conversation will be closed. I'm sure you have heard it asked and may even have asked it yourself. How can a loving God send people to hell? Well, that is a tough question. It is also a question We better be prepared to answer if we're going to reach an unconvinced generation with the good news of Christ. In order to build a basis to answer this question from a biblical foundation, let's look at a reading from the Psalms. This is an epiphany reading. It is found in Psalms 27, verse 1, and then concludes in verses 4 through 9. It goes, like this the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid one thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life When I was in high school, my class on American literature was one of my favorite. We were exposed there to the poetry and prose that Americans have used throughout our rather brief national history to express who we are and what we believe. Students from the class were selected, as I recall, by their peers to read aloud sections from the text prior to class discussion. It should be of no surprise to you when I tell you that the assignment I was chosen for was to be a reader from Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And thus suddenly, and without prior notice, my first preaching experience, I suppose, could be counted as being in public high school to an 11th grade English class. And I want you to know, I gave it my all. For my first sermon, I got to deliver powerful lines like, The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow in one moment from being made drunk with your blood. (laughs) Now, that is fire and brimstone preaching for sure. In case you don't know, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was a typical sermon of the National Revival called the Great Awakening that took place in America between the years 1730 and 1755. Reverend Edwards, in this famous sermon, emphasized the widely held belief that hell was a real and functional place. The imagery and message of his sermon was intended to awaken his congregation to the horrific reality that he argued awaited them should they continue without Christ. The underlying point that is sometimes overshadowed by his dramatic language is that God has given human beings a chance of redemption. As historian George Marsden put it, Edwards could take for granted that a New England audience knew well the gospel remedy. The problem was getting them to seek it. Edwards actually says that it is the will of God to prevent wicked people from entering the depths of hell. This act of restraint has given humanity a chance to mend their ways and return to Christ. We find ourselves in a far different situation today, wherein colonial America viewed hell almost universally as a reality. Today, it is considered a mere artifact of religion, a way of enforcing a moral code, old-fashioned, unuseful, and unhelpful in a modern religious dialogue. Thus, if it is talked about at all, it is either de-emphasized or denied altogether. On the other end of the spectrum are those who think on hell almost all the time. They are overly quick to assign others to fiery perdition, themselves accepted because of their personal theology, which they see as their ticket to paradise. In the words of one hell-threatening Christian who, when I was in college, upon mistaking my friend and I for non-Christians, wagged a finger in our faces and said, God is going to get you, boys. No wonder a non-believing generation looks askance at a religion that has within its borders such anger and vengeance. So what does our Christian faith actually teach us on this hot topic? Is hell, its existence and admission requirement, like so many aspects of our faith that are easily misunderstood and misrepresented? How can we gain a new and better perspective that reinforces our concept of a God of love and grace while at the same time acknowledging the biblical teaching regarding eternity? I think. That in order to approach this difficult subject, I must emphasize two important aspects of biblical interpretation. I've spoken about these many times, but whenever we approach this topic, especially in light of the modern doubting audience, it is crucial that we grasp and employ these principles in our interpretation of the Bible. The criterion for which the entire Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. The light we are given through Jesus must be cast upon all our interpretation of Scripture. And Jesus does have a thing or two to say about eternity. Oh, and I'd like to make a special point here. I've often heard it said, that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other topic, including heaven. I'd like to challenge that. It is actually more accurate to say that Jesus spoke more on eternal existence than other topics. Understanding that subtle shift of emphasis is going to make a huge difference in understanding the topic of hell. You see, Jesus affirms what is hinted at in the Hebrew scriptures, that is the soul's eternal existence. Perhaps this is a good place to consider for a moment the question, if hell really exists at all. Nearly 4,000 years ago, Sumerians believed in a great below, where the dead reside. Ancient Greeks wrote of an abyss so deep that a soul could fall for a year and not reach the bottom. And in the biblical book of Job, the underworld is called Sheol, and is described as a dark pit beneath the earth. Nearly all cultures have believed in a real underworld, the universe of the dead beneath the earth. But our concern ought to be, what did Jesus teach on this topic? The truth is that much of the impressions we have about hell do not come from Jesus. Samuel G. Dawson makes this clear when he focuses on Jesus' teaching about Gehenna, the word we translate as hell, when he writes, We can find none of this language of red-hot floors, dungeons, red-hot ovens, vessels of hot oil, being able to see the throne of God, bricklands, torture, racks, chains, or great furnaces anywhere in these twelve passages that deal with the subject of Gehenna in the Bible. However, they are easily found in Milton's Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno. So let's not get bogged down with a too literal description of hell that exceeds Jesus' actual teaching. Instead, consider the concept of hell as the place where God's presence is not manifest. Let me repeat that. The concept of hell as the place where God's presence is not manifest it is the absence of his fellowship that is torture and it is the torture we strive in vain to describe the idea leads us naturally into the second interpretive principle the other thing the other principle of interpretation is to stop reading the Bible as a constitution, and read it as it was intended, as an unfolding drama. If the Bible were meant to be understood as a constitution, a Western construction of thought and ideas, by the way, then each sentence would bear equal weight and could be taken in isolation from the whole. But the Bible is not a constitution. It is more akin to a drama being played out through history. You can't understand it until the final act, the climatic moment when Jesus conquers sin, death, and the grave. And that takes us to today's scripture, which is part of the unfolding revelation of God's redemption, what we often call progressive revelation. This passage The psalm of David on the surface does not appear to be about hell. It is so positive, speaking about salvation and dwelling in the safety of God's protection. But consider for a moment how these words of King David fit into the broader narrative of Scripture. Why do human beings need salvation in the first place? The answer to that is provided in Genesis and is confirmed in the New Testament. In Genesis, we are told that God created us for fellowship. It was not his desire or will that we would suffer alienation from him or each other. Yet our first parents as representative of all who of us chose to rebel against God's love and provision. And it was our rebellion that resulted in the need for redemption. The story of the Bible therefore is God's activity through the ages to restore that which was lost. Alienation utter and complete alienation is the definition of hell. Forget about fire and the devil with a pitchfork for a moment. These are merely ways the alienation is described. But at its core To be in hell is to be separated from God, and that is not God's desire for human beings. It is our choice and our destiny unless something intervenes. Something must interrupt the evil stream that flows through our souls. The pain and struggle we experience in life can serve a redemptive purpose. C.S. Lewis spoke of this when he said, until man finds evil unmistakably present in his existence in the form of pain, He is enclosed in illusion. Once pain has roused him, he knows that he is in some way or other up against the real universe. He either rebels with the possibility of a clearer issue and deeper repentance at some later stage, or else makes some attempt at an adjustment, which if pursued will lead him to religion. No doubt pain, as God's megaphone, is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. But it gives the only opportunity man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. You see, there is a moment. Between complete union with God and complete separation from God, where God is actively working to redeem that which was lost. Hell is not God's desire for us, but as Reverend Timothy Keller so aptly puts it, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. In eternity, this disintegration goes on forever. There is increasing isolation, denial, delusion, and self-absorption. When you lose all humanity, you are out of touch with reality. No one ever asks to leave hell. The very idea of heaven seems to them a sham. The story of Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus only confirms this. In the Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, Jesus speaks a parable that is primarily about acting justly. But the setting for the lesson is in the afterlife. Briefly, it is a comparison between a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Their fortunes are reversed in death, with Lazarus finding contentment and peace, and the rich man finding himself in a place of torment. One commentator has noticed. The rich man seems blind to what has happened. He still expects Lazarus to be his servant and treats him as his water boy. He does not ask to get out of hell, yet strongly implies that God never gave him and his family enough information about the afterlife. Commentators have noted the astonishing amount of denial, blame-shifting, and spiritual blindness in this soul in hell. So, is hell, in the final analysis, God's invention? Maybe a better way to view it is as God's willingness to allow us to choose against him. By that reckoning, God didn't invent hell. We did. Again, C.S. Lewis speaks a powerful word intended to realign our entire perspective on this subject. Listen thoughtfully to a compilation of his thoughts on this from several of his books. He writes, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left. To criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. There are only two kinds of people those who say, Thy will be done to God, and those to whom God In the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I agree with C.S. Lewis. And I agree with David. Who prayed, one thing I have asked of the Lord. That I will seek after him that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter of his wings in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Do you see it now? This is not a picture of God sending people to hell, but urging us to avoid it. This is the picture of a loving God providing a way of escape through a salvation only He can provide. The Apostle Peter put it this way The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What a different picture of God emerges from the pages of Scripture when we see his desire to save us from our self-imposed hells. This is the God who came to rescue us, not to condemn us. This is the God who is not willing that we should perish, but that we should live eternally. And so we are able to answer the question, God does not send anyone to hell But he has done everything to save us from it. And sad it is that there will be some who will refuse his outstretched hand. We sense it is true because we have sensed it in ourselves. We know how easy it is to slide into darkness, selfishness, to reject love and hope, to descend into hell. But thanks be to God, there is another way. As for others, it is not our job to condemn. We do not determine the saved and the lost. We do not send them to heaven or to hell. Our job, our mission is to proclaim by our words and our very lives the hope that lives within us. And God, who knows every heart, will see and will judge. And no one who desires heaven will ever miss it. Let us pray. Lord, in our desire to find your salvation, let us realize that it is you who is seeking us. May we turn from our darkness and doubt and embrace your light and truth. While hell may be a reality, it is not our unalterable fate. You have given us hope and redemption in your son, Jesus. To him we turn for our life. And to him we point others for their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.